As always, thank you to Proper T for playing us in there. You know where you're at. You're at your uncle's house, and, well, you're staying for a couple weekends because... It's movie month, and you're hanging out with Grunkle and Nephew, and you're just watching all these movies with your family, and it's a nice, warm environment where you can talk about the movies with us. Isn't and it's right? also a podcast where where we talk about movies. Yeah, where, where actually, yeah, it's just us rambling uh, after recording ourselves. It's, I guess more... True it's more reality, of a state but... of mind than it is an experience, Grunkle. All right, it's more of a, it's more of a plane of existence. All right, it's what we're talking about is so ephemeral. I can't even describe it or truly understand it myself. Yeah, well, we've got the team cooking up a little special VR Grunkle movie month experience for all the. Uh, mm. Yes, our, all the our illustrious team of, of dozens of graphic designers. Mm-hmm. Software mm-hmm. engineers, coders, you know, we got it all. 3D Who engineers. even are we? Who am I? Who are you? Well, I'm Elliot the Nephew. He's Tristan the Grunkle. And we're here talking about movies. We're doing shtick over here. What are that? We're yeah. doing shtick. We're doing, we're doing a little bippity-boppity, if you know what yeah. I mean. We were doing some uh, bippity-boppity together in person. Uh, yeah, bopping each other's bips. <laughs> you could put it like that, I suppose, but... Uh, two weekends ago, uh, in March, around the 20th, I drove to Chicago from New York and uh, had a little family reunion. Yeah, it was a grand old time. We got to see, we got to see the greatest band in the world play an amazing set. Well, we got to hang out and play board games and eat at restaurants. It was a good time. It was a really good time. Um, back in New York now. Still in Chicago here. Yeah, yeah, you got to stay. I had to the cycle, the cycle continues. The circle turns around. Uncle. Yes, we were able to watch a um, a movie month movie together, which is aww, uh, nice. Even done what that. Did we even watch this week, Grunkle. What did we watch? Oh my god! Discussing right now. Well, if you've been paying attention, you heard the last episode. You already know. But for all you, all you little deviants out there, the ragamuffins. Yeah, the ragamuffins and what have you. That uh, or maybe a little uh, bad boy energy and don't know what we're talking about. We're talking about Grave of Fireflies. We're talking about love exposure. We're talking about showgirls, and we're talking about the last movie. Talking about my humps, my humps, my humps, my humps. No, we're talking about Wait, movies. I feel like last time we lied to them because we didn't know that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our, our movie got sniped. What were we right. even? Matawan got sniped. Because yeah. sometimes we'll pick a movie and either without realizing it or in the time between picking it and watching it, it will be removed or not present on a streaming service. And so Grunkle and I scream into the ether and then we just pick another movie. So as Matawan was Grunkle's pick, he replaced it with uh, Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie. And ironically, it is the last movie we are discussing on today's podcast. Best decision of my life. Mm, we'll get but we'll there. get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, but the the uh, first two are uh, are yours. They are mine. The first one being 
Studio Ghibli's Grave of the Fireflies. Uh, this is probably the best known work from Studio Ghibli that was not directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Would you agree with that? Or maybe Ponyo? Or is Ponyo Miyazaki? No, Ponyo's Miyazaki. Yeah, it's either this or Princess uh, Cayuga. So, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But probably Grave of Fireflies. I mean, this this film has a very specific reputation. Uh, yeah, you know. absolutely. It certainly has the reputation of being like the uh, the tearjerker anime mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. Um, Grave of the Fireflies, which was originally conceived as a double feature with My Neighbor Totoro, the original idea having uh, both films run about an hour, but through the production process, each film engorged itself and uh, are now two standalone films. But we follow a pair of children, Seta and Setsuko, as after they are orphaned during a firebombing on their hometown. And the trials and tribulations as these two children move through a worn, torn world. Yeah, very early on in the film, we discover that these characters are doomed to death. The worst thing one could possibly be doomed to. And the film pulls no punches in its sentimentality. And we are given a very three-dimensional picture of what these children's lives are like as they go from uh, happy Japanese children to dead orphans. Yeesh. It is a, it's a tough pill to swallow sometimes. But it is... Um, It is a very beautifully made film, and I think that it is effective in what it sets out to do. And that while there are parts of the film that, you know, are more in line with a sort of masochism of your typical tearjerker, you know, something a la Marley and me and Hachi, you know, any movie with a dog in it, when you know the dog is going to die, you know, they're going to be sad, and those movies prey on your emotions for effect in the film. And sometimes it's really glaring and other times it is artful. And I would say in this case, it is quite artful. Yeah, you know, this is a film that I've been meaning to watch since like middle school. Yeah, and like, and it's like, oh, wow, My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, Castle in the Sky, Spirited Away. These are all, you know, fun, cool movies and like the discovery of the style of of Japanese animation. But then you're like, oh, Grave the Fireflies. Right, yeah. That's the the fucked up one. That's the really sad one. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, ah, I don't know if I want to tip my toes into this territory. But I'm... Yeah, I, like you, had put it off for a while. And man, oh man, am I glad to have finally gotten around to it. Yeah, me too. Maybe as you've picked up uh, through our picks or through our conversations, but I would say that the two of us are both uh, certainly lean into the abyss and, you know, watch a lot of bleak films. Oh, yeah, baby. And so, you know, it's like when you're always kind of consuming that kind of stuff and there's this one film that's like heralded as like the bleakest anime, it's right. It gives you a certain kind of preconception going in and the films Mm. like really bleak. Don't get me wrong, but I don't know, maybe just because of some of the really bleaker films that I've watched, this Mm -hmm. didn't necessarily live up to that. Because I think that a big thing about this film 
is that while the characters are doomed from the beginning, the whole film is about their fight and struggle to survive. And they have so much of that. And because they're so desperate to elevate themselves from their current situation and fight against the forces that are, you know, bringing them down, it isn't almost as bleak as a movie like, you know, something from Igmar Bergman, where it's like the forces of the world are consuming these characters and they're basically lying there watching their bodies decay. Right. Whereas yeah. this, you know, is so it's it's heartbreaking versus despair. Yeah, doom. I mean? like, yeah, yeah. Although right. it's it's more about the tragedy of these people than it is about how fucked and unfixable the world is, which I feel like a lot right. of bleak dramas come from, you know, something yeah. like the human condition, which is also set in wartime, that is also focused on characters who are constantly coming up against loss. That movie has little to no hope in it whatsoever. And because of that is a lot more grating on the soul. Right. And, you know, there even in Grave of Fireflies, at the end of the film, there is this notion of, of peaceful rest, of their, their souls, their ghosts uh, reuniting in the afterlife and uh, mm-hmm. on this hill together. And it's, it's, it, 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 it ends tugging at both tragedy and a sort of catharsis through the, that, that kind of sweetness of the ending. Yeah, absolutely. And because we follow, you know, children who are really struggling and we really yeah. see them go through so many horrible things as a result of the war disrupting their lives. And because they're children, you know, yeah, we sympathize with them so deeply. You know, we want them to rise above their situation. We want somebody to extend a hand to them, but nobody does. People, you know, push them away. Right. Yeah. And they're seen as degenerates and leeches on society in that because they don't have anything to contribute during this time of war. And I think it's a really interesting examination of that lifestyle and that that the way how lifestyle is disrupted when war happens and examining the, the wartime lifestyle underneath a certain code of values and a certain honor system that is very present in Japan that people take quite seriously. And as um, a foreign viewer is always interesting to kind of further understand, you know, these systems and these ideals. And while no one film can espouse, you know, all the ideals of Japanese values, because I'm sure that um, people are conflicting within themselves with what that even means. Yeah, it's just interesting to get another little morsel of that. Yeah, and it's the all Japanophiles in Japanophiles we are. Right. Japanophiles, indeed. It's all very, you know, it's all situated in this collapse of not only, you know, the physical and the infrastructural, but, um, uh, yeah, as you were saying, collapse of value and a collapse of community and family. And you have this threat from the American bombers that are sort of omnipotent, but detached and untouchable and expected. And there's this enemy that no matter what you do, you can't escape. The things that you're going to turn to are your neighbors and your family. But for these children, these innocent children, it's the enemy is not only this apocalypse from above, but, uh, you know, it turns out that their aunt becomes a source of conflict and farmers become a source of conflict. And there's almost this like 
classist hegemony and inserting its dominance over these two children and they don't right. but, but they then can't even turn then, to anything. these these are rather high class children at the beginning you know because right. we have they are the son of an esteemed the son and daughter of an esteemed navy general who is a key figure in the war and whose absence is felt throughout the entire film and but without those, their parents to relate themselves to, they do become nobodies. You know what yeah. I mean? They do, yeah, become these street urchins. Castaways. Uh, Jesus, that's a little cruel. But yeah, castaways. <laughs> yeah, certainly, certainly better. Um, and what I found so heartbreaking about this film is that, well, of, of spoiler alert, as we are one to do on the Grunkle Pod, eventually these children die. We mentioned that. Well, but we've Setsuko, already... the younger sister. Uh, she dies of malnourishment and there's this really heartbreaking montage after she's already passed where you kind of get to see what a day in her life looks like because at one point she and her brother take refuge in a abandoned bomb shelter and he has to go into town to do this and that to try to get them whatever bits of food he can to help them survive. And during that time, we don't really see what she's doing until this little montage at the end. And just like all the, the different ways she was interacting with the world. And then one of the things that I noticed most is that she was eating dirt largely when she was gone, when he was gone. That when she was unsupervised, this child was just eating dirt, thinking, pretending it was food. And I, I can only imagine that that contributed to her illness and ultimate death. And um, yeah, I don't know. This film is certainly, it certainly toes that line of masochistic tearjerker. Right. But I don't think it ever is um, completely guilty. Yeah, you know, we, uh, we throw around the term emotionally manipulative, which of course all art is trying to manipulate your emotions, but it's when it's when the, when the mechanisms to do so are like really exposed is when we kind of use that. But I, yeah, I don't find that the case here. Challenge I, that notion that art is innately to manipulate emotions. Because I feel like a lot of great art doesn't try to get you to feel a certain way. It just presents you with everything and lets you feel what you want to feel. You know what I mean? Like right, but in doing so... You can't necessarily prescribe an experience along with a piece of art. That the, 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 the experience is the meeting point between the piece of art itself and the audience member consuming it. Right, I don't, well, I don't think that, you know, all art manipulates you to a destination that it's enforcing but it there is certainly inactive manipulate because you know if you're engaging with it then there is some sort know, of me, emotional response which is facilitated by the art and whether it's doing it whether the intent is authorial or on on the viewer either way there is that response to it which is manipulated by it just by its being to me the word manipulate like so much signals trying to get a specific right. reaction yeah that's you're fair. trying yeah. to to lead a person to a specific conclusion or a specific yeah. feeling yeah and that's... i don't i think that a lot i think that the best art maybe doesn't do that at all that it just presents it and so, yeah, maybe that's that's the folly of this film that it is um, a little a little too two dimensional, maybe. 
that it isn't quite uh it doesn't quite have the breadth of some other films but it's still able to capture and communicate so much beauty in, with what it does have yeah I, w- I would agree yeah grave of the fireflies great anything from studio ghibli i am I, I i can't really say i've seen a bad film from studio ghibli but i'm also very aware that i've seen all of the best films from studio ghibli certainly at this point this is like right. probably the only real standout so who knows if i'll go back digging and digging in those trenches probably just gonna keep them as the comfort watches they are do you have a favorite ghibli grunkle Oh, I mean, Princess Mononoke is one of my favorite films yeah, of all without time. Yeah, a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so. I got to say. Yeah. Princess Mononoke. Then for me, number two would probably be Castle in the Sky. I love that movie. Yeah. After after Mononoke, it's just like, just I love them all. And then it's just like Mononoke. Yeah. But Mononoke's got the number one, you know? And yeah, then it's all sure. just like. For sure. Without a love doubt. Love it. I mean, that movie is just a triumph. Oh, it's epic. It's an epic. Uh, mm-hmm. All right, so moving on to Love Exposure, 2008 film from Japanese director Sion Sono. Uh, This film, where the hell do we even start? Um, We mentioned earlier that this month was the month of long movies, and this is one of our long movies. I think this is either the second or third longest of the month. I think it's the second. It's got to be the second, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's So we'll say second longest, uh, clocking in just under four hours. This film follows the son of a priest <laughs> who turns into an upskirt photographer after feeling the need to sin because his father didn't believe him in confessionals when he said he wasn't sinning. So he becomes a panty peeper and through this life choice, many different wheels are set in motion. He meets many different individuals, most most notably this woman named Yoko, who he thinks is his uh, Virgin Mary, so to speak, and that he constantly compares her to Mother Mary and that she is the woman for him. And so a lot of the second part of the second half of the movie is dealing with his courtship of her, which is further complicated when she becomes his kind of stepsister. Oh my gosh, what the heck is even going on? Oh, (laughs) Oh, Japan and your, your wacky campiness. Um, meanwhile, there is a re- religious cult in the background that is being run by this other woman who is sort of, I don't know, she's kind of like a, a Greek chorus at times with her cronies uh, popping up at different moments throughout the film. And the way she connects to um, these two could be lovers and manipulates the trajectory of their lives. Um, man, Grunkle, this is the movie we watched together. Uh-huh. And we had, um, yeah, quite the time watching this movie. I enjoyed this movie incredibly. Incredibly, without a doubt. Because <laughs> so much of it is just so gloriously campy. 
And that is something that I find that Japanese media can do better than anybody else. And that is camp people. All right. All right. The Japanese, they got camp on lock. Not even the drag queens can, can fuck with Scion Soto because everything in this movie is so over the top, but it's never too much. It's never completely outside the realm of impossibility. It, requires you to suspend your disbelief but it takes you on such an enjoyable wacky journey that you can't help but have a good time and then ultimately through all of the um i don't know if i would quite there's there's a lot of violence in this film because what this what you our protagonist is doing when he is you know taking these voyeuristic pictures is without a doubt sexual violence and then there's other moments that are just actual violence of people just fighting each other. But yeah, through the violence and through this winding domestic journey, we get some really interesting moments and some really interesting, I don't know, little insights and takeaways that I certainly wish I, uh, I wrote down a couple more of because you know, now um, considering the film and especially considering the size of this film, it's nearly four hours. That's it's a lot to take in. It's a lot to um, metabolize. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like any breakdown that I can do right now would not do justice to the experience that watching exactly, the film is, exactly. you know? Because, and maybe that's just... the way it's structured, the the density of a four-hour film, that just giving, like, the plot points feels like you're not getting everything. Right. And it might just be me copping out of having a hard time talking about the movie. But like by the end of the film, you know, it's become this totally new thing over and over again. It's mm-hmm. constantly reinventing itself. And in any film with a four hour runtime, you're going to wind up somewhere that's radically different. But the way that this film specifically goes about getting you there, it's just so... Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when you watch as many movies as we do, it's really special when you come across as something as unique and well executed as this is in its vision. Yeah. And, you know, for me personally, it kind of, I went between being like, this is genius and like, this is not, I'm not. Yeah, that this is just kind of, no, for sure. It's kind of um, that thing you run into, you know, with a movie kind of like, um, a movie like Spring Breakers, for instance, yeah. or yeah. Ichi the Killer, that right, is really, yeah, exactly. That is really leaning into these monoliths of culture. That sometimes somebody's going to watch it and be like, "This has absolutely nothing to say about the world we live in. It is simply glorifying these things it's depicting." And other times, it completely recontextualizes the way you consider that topic and your and our relationship to such a topic uh, as a society. And so, yeah, I don't know. It kind of feels like uh, it's hard to judge entirely on a first watch. Um, It's hard to get down for a second watch too, I would say just because of how long it is and it's relative inaccessibility. Uh, This film was only available on iTunes as of our research, but I don't know, maybe it's just the, uh, the Japanophile in me and, um, all the little animes I've seen, but just, uh, 
yeah, just playing off of the ideas of like of of a, of obsessive romance and this kind of like almost stalkerism that happens and this uh this idea of I don't know just human passion. I think this film really captures and maximizes human passion to great effect. Yeah, I really, I really wish I, yeah, took more notes immediately after watching this movie because we are pretty far removed from the viewing. Yeah, at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're, it was about a week and a half ago, I'm saying now. We're slowing down. Maybe we shouldn't tell the viewers this, though. Time, Grunkle, time! Whoa! The time crystals are slipping through my fingers! Well, don't drop them, man. This could spill disaster for. No, humanity. I'm not going to drop the time crystals. Uh, we cannot spill disaster for millennia. I was in the same lecture you were, Grunkle. Yeah, but. That's true. Yeah, love exposure. I um love exposure. We were exposed uh, to love. Yeah. In this sort of twisted and it is like I don't know, it's like an action romance at the end of the day. Yeah. Cuz in a way yeah. these two people are destined for each other even though they seem so completely incompatible for like three and a half hours. Right. Yeah, it is um yeah, I would say that if you are someone who has consumed a lot of Japanese media, then this is certainly a film you're going to get a lot out of because this film plays with a lot of themes that are present in a lot of Japanese media. Um, but like we were discussing before and like we've discussed often that monoliths are never, never appreciated and that many issues have many sides. But what this film does have to say about said topics is incredibly interesting and is poignant for my book yeah but if you aren't a person who has that much experience then i would recommend you know i don't know watching some other stuff first probably that this is not a super accessible film like maybe the least accessible film we've watched so far yeah, uh, certainly of episodes we've talked about on the podcast, you know, maybe yeah. Sleep maybe, Has Her House is pretty inaccessible. Sleep Has Her House, maybe though, but like Sleep Has Her House is also 90, is like 85 minutes, you know what I mean? And yeah, it's like, but... uh, you know, if you can if you can get down for like a little, for a little like ambient music, right. you know what I mean? Just kind of, I, I don't think it's that big of a, a jump of a conclusion. I don't know. Maybe Titan, but that's kind of like made to be no, like a, a popular. Maybe yes. a year for thirteen moons. That's oh my god, accessible. yeah, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> nobody should ever watch that movie. No, <laughs> I, I mean I loved it, but like, don't watch that movie. I yeah. Don't yeah. When are we gonna make a movie called "Don't Watch This Movie"? I'm sure somebody's already made oh. that movie. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, probably. Um. Shall we? Uh, oh, uh, Hachi statue makes an appearance in Love. Oh Avengers. yes, the Hachi statue. Hachi, who appeared on November Movie Month, Richard Gere and <laughs> Jason Alexander, and Hachi <laughs> feeding the dog hot dogs till he dies. <laughs> that is what that movie is about. That is what that movie is about. Um, but yeah, those were. Those were our film. Those were my two two more Japanese movies from me for movie month. Yeah, yeah. I think that's all the Japanese movies 
for me for this movie month, but I did pick four. I have one myself. Don't know. No, I picked five. I picked five. Wow. And then you picked The Legend of the Mountain. Is that from Japan? Yeah, yeah. That one. No, that's from China, isn't it? Oh, it's Chinese? Yeah, I think this is from China. Oh, okay. Okay, so now it's your turn to talk about your movies, Grunkle, and I'm <laughs> going to take a nap because it's not as important as me talking about my movies. Goodbye. Well, all right. I guess it's... Uh... We're truly living up to the name of the podcast, and it's just Grunkle's Movie Month. So I'll just be monologuing for the next two movies. Uh, and it'll be great because I love both of these movies, and I'll have such exuberance and passion that uh, you won't be able to click away. First movie I'll be talking about is Showgirls uh, from 1995, directed by Paul Verhoeven and written by Joel Esterhaas. I also want to shout out the choreographer Marguerite Derricks and the man who did the music David Stewart because I think both of their work uh, for this film is pretty phenomenal. Paul Verhoeven if you don't know him is uh, I consider a master of using camp satire as a vehicle to expose and deconstruct toxic power structures. You've got films like RoboCop uh, taking a look at militarized police and surveillance states. Uh, You've got Starship Troopers, which looks at fascism and military industrial complex. And then you've got what we watched for this movie month. You've got Showgirls, which uh, shines a light on the entertainment industry and the sort of corporate machine that he, that it can be, how it can churn out commodified bodies um, to be consumed, uh, sexualized commodified bodies. Uh, it stars Elizabeth Berkley, Gina Gershon, and Kyle MacLachlan. I think they're all pretty fantastic. Elizabeth Berkley plays uh, Nomi, who is this... Uh, sort of on the road, a con artist type who uh, starts off as a stripper in Vegas after hitchhiking into town. And she winds up working at uh, a topless show at one of the casinos. Um, And it is this over-the-top camp epic. I mean, it is... I love this movie so much. The dance numbers, the drama, the the flair, the cinematography, the choreography. I think it's all great. I think it all works very well together. And it's it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous movie. And it's absolutely fucked. Ridiculous. Yeah. Completely ridiculous. In every sense of the word, it's ridiculous. Like yeah. in the word in like the way that the basic plot things that happen, they happen and you go, that wouldn't happen. People wouldn't do that. Real real human beings interacting in the world don't behave in such a way. But in the vehicle of the film, it is kind of being used as like almost an expressway of like getting to these moments that are ultimately human, but the kind of connective tissue between those moments is just so completely far-fetched. Also, I'm back, by the way. Yeah, I didn't... Uh... I didn't let you in. How'd you get in here? I came through the window. Oh, that's good. 
Um, as we've talked about on the on the podcast before, you know, it's like when what you podcast? use. Oh, what? Uh, what do you mean? What podcast? This podcast. Oh, right, this podcast. If you interrupt me again, no dessert, Buster Brown. Yeah, jokes um, on you. Oh, jokes on you. Um, yeah, you know, as we've talked about on this podcast before, because that's what this is. When you use kind of melodrama and heightened emotions and heightened action, you can sort of arrive at the the essence of something uh, while not being based in any sort of reality, but getting to the truth nonetheless. For me, this film exists at the perfect convergence of art, political statement, and entertainment. And that, mm-hmm. like, I get the maximum out of all three of those from this movie and from Verhoeven's other films, too, that I've seen. Yeah. Um, I think for me, the biggest issue I have with Verhoeven is that it leans too much entertainment political statement for me. That mm-hmm. it doesn't always quite get all the way to that art level. God, right. I'm so fucking pretentious. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> but I think the reason why this film worked a lot more than starship troopers for me is because it had more to say on the topic than just mm. military bad because that's right. really all i got out of starship troopers right the mil- military bad and we'll keep feeding ourselves to it and while i think that what showgirls has to say is less about the entire entertainment industry and is more about kind of our obsession with celebrity that it kind of feels yeah it's a little more micro i guess than what i was necessarily anticipating but it is nonetheless over the top and it is i think i don't know that the that the way that this film could be so explicit i think really served its purpose because in starship troopers the what was being shown that was explicit was like bug guts showing up everywhere which can only affect you so much but when you see a woman get actually completely naked and literally hump a man until he comes in his pants. Like that happened. Like I'm pretty sure Kyle actually came his pants in that scene. Like, like there's, there's really no hiding it. There's no hiding it. Yeah, no, this movie um, initially was given an NC 17 rating and flopped. It was a box office bomb. It didn't have return. Oh my gosh. I can't even believe that. Yeah, but then it became <laughs> you. You shut it, eh? Um, <laughs> so yeah, I got NC seventeen, and it like made no money. But then uh, eventually turned it profit. ruined Elizabeth Berkeley's career yeah. too. Don't and eventually, that. yeah, who Eventu- was you know a, a starlet from? Well, maybe not starlet, but she was a uh, certainly certainly quite popular after Saved by the Bell, one of the biggest TV shows yeah. of the nineties. You know. Yeah, I her performance in this film like invents a new acting and like hasn't been done since. And was it done? it's amazing. Like she is so good no, in this movie. Yeah, the character is like psychopathic, and she plays it so well because it is under so much of a veneer of the glitz and the glamour and right. the the you know the the showbiz of it all. Right. But yeah, I don't know. And I think that the film also works well as a piece of entertainment. And then I think that is what it, I don't know, it leans more towards that 
to yep. me. That is like is saying something, but it also is there to entertain you because the numbers are quite entertaining. Um, oh my the, God, the plot awesome. itself is quite, I don't know, is rather formulaic run of the mill, but you know, we have formulas for a reason because things work. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's fantastic. And how it explores class and there's this woman who kind of has this like um, adopted working class family at the strip club and the kind of father figure is gross and sleazy but is kind of framed as more honest and less deceiving and manipulative than those at the top and there's this like working class mother character who is one of the very few people that actually cares about Nomi and isn't lying to her or um, using her because um, a lot of the but characters she's also moving through the world using other people <laughs> right right intentionally very yeah. specifically with very much a goal in mind and that is I have to get to the top I have to be the biggest I have to be the most famous right. yeah I think a big thing that was missing for me was a little bit more of who this character really is because we get at a point that she has this kind of crazy troubled past that she has completely run away from and that I think I don't know there's something that's a little bit more interesting of like how a person comes to this and why they're doing it versus the actually watching them do it right which is um really interesting because you know at the end she is hitchhiking again and you see her going off to LA implying that she's almost in this loop hopping right. from place to place rising to the top and being exploited and thrown away and then going to some other aspect of the media landscape and like, you know it's like yeah. she has a run in vegas and then she's gonna have a run in hollywood and she's just like caught in this cycle of the commodification and exploitation and yeah doing it yeah to have that moment of fame and power and it's you know mm -hmm. it's all about how many power structures there are you know it's not just the top the very top and the very bottom but there's little micro power structures between everybody and everybody's kind of tuning into that and playing that game in the in the entertainment industry in, in vegas and and you know showtime folks Showtime, baby. Yeah, for me, there was two pieces of art that really reminded me of this film. One being Bob Fosse's Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Bob Fosse and um, what's their name? Citizen and Kane. That's not it. Candor and Ebb. Uh, Bob Fosse, Candor and Ebb. Their production of Chicago and Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan, right? That's Darren Aronofsky? Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. like 95. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that both of those movies deal with, you know, very similar themes, very similar ideas, but also can make statements that stick a little better for me. Because, uh -huh. I don't know, I think that within how explicit everything is in this film and within all the glitz and the grammar and the entertainment that some of it kind of gets lost and you, I don't know, but then I think, I think kind of the point of it, this as well is that it's kind of sucking you in and that it's supposed to suck you in. And then there's those moments where it's sucking you in and then it spits you back out and you're like, Whoa, what the fuck, you know? And then that kind that, that kind of cycle of, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to say. 
Yeah, well, we've, we've talked about this with Takashi Miike, but, you know, I think Verhoeven very cleverly makes you complicit in as an audience member. And mm-hmm. the very fact that he is making you feel entertained by the sort of things that he is saying is a statement in itself, or at least tries to be. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with you, Brooke. That, uh, yeah, I don't know. He's, uh, he's a director who's very interesting. That he's kind of, he kind of seems like he's trying to have his cake and eat it too, though. Sometimes. Yeah, but that's, that's you know, that's, that's kind of what we talk yeah. about with Mike and yeah. yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and uh, Fosse. Yeah. Speaking of Fosse, starting right? Yeah, yeah, that no, that's certainly. Yeah, that that little that curse trifecta right there. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Yeah, those dirty cake eaters. All right, what can we do? What can we do? We gotta. We can we talk gotta, about the last movie. We gotta dis- We gotta decrease the production of cake, so the supply drops. But they're so rich and powerful, they can pay anything. Ugh, damn it, Grunkle. Yeah, I guess we'll just talk about the last movie. <laughs> the last movie, 1971, uh, directed and co-written by Dennis Hopper, co-written with Stuart Stern. Dennis also edited the film and stars in it. And he plays a stuntman on a film shoot in Peru. And he stays after the production wraps and he uh, is witness to the impact that the filmmaking process had on the locals. Um, And it's this very tripped out meta film uh, in which, you know, Hopper creates a film within a film and uses post-colonial and neo-colonial critiques to move through the lasting effects that imperialism uh, has had and would continue to have after this film. And much like Showgirls, it was a big old flop and uh, Dennis Hopper... Really? (laughs) Dennis Hopper uh, didn't make another movie for nine years. So at the time, it kind of almost seemed like it was his last movie. Got John Cop in this. Yeah. Um, and I was crazy about this movie. Um, it was pretty much right up my alley, early seventies, Dennis Hopper. Um, this is his sophomore film after Easy Rider. Talk about it. That's it. The two things. Those are the two qualifications for Grunkle to love it. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. But also like, you know, this like psych folk rock and this, uh, film within a film and, all that goodness that I love so much. What did you think about the last movie? I had, I had no idea what was going on in this movie. None. I had no clue. Because the film is metafiction. I got that. I, I, I would say that I got everything that you've said about this movie thus far. But in watching the movie and just like how schizophrenic it is in its portrayal and... I don't know. I just found it so trite and a little mm. masturbatory at mm. times that mm-hmm. um, it kind of wasn't really about anything. And just like 
white people making movies about colonialism, it's like, awesome, bro. You want to pat yourself on the back? Oh, you're going to play the bad guy too? Oh, sweet, dude. Sweet. Well, yeah, I think, I think Hopper is making himself complicit within the filmmaking process and the colonial elements embedded in it. And he's, he's almost... I don't know. I also don't think that this film makes that much of a statement about the nature of Hollywood as a machine and the way that Hollywood is complicit in colonialism and the way that these film shoots can disrupt communities because I feel like the specific scenario that arose in this film was just so abstract and just, I don't know, out of out of purport or out of yeah out of what i would consider reality that that to me that i think that the film industry likely does things that are much more direct and harmful to these communities that it occupies just to get a shot um than is depicted in this film because what what the film industry does to this community is that it just kind of makes them obsessed with movies and want to make a movie themselves so they create all these giant stick cameras to then recreate movies and they're recreating these violent movies but they don't know that the movies are faking so they're actually hitting each other but then most of the violence they're enacting is then on to dennis hopper who was a stuntman in this movie who that they associate with this movie and then also initially i thought this film was going to be like he was going to stay behind to really take in the community and try to understand everything, but it, he stays behind because he wants to hook up with this woman who he then starts abusing. You know what I mean? It's just like, uh, eh, eh, yeah, you can, you can have your dick and jerk it too, I guess, Dennis Hopper. Hey, yo. I, think, I think it's not about what the systems of Hollywood um, do as a imperial entity, but using the systems of Hollywood as analog for what imperial states, um, for what effect that they have through their um, colonial um, hegemony that they, you know, sought to create. And when these imperial states come in and introduce and codify, they, you know, put in a polity that is of the... um, colonizers creation and it sets up infrastructure and social institutions that are not native and are enforced upon even through consent and coercion and when these um, colonized states eventually break free they are left with these social institutions and these and these infrastructure and this framework that was forced upon them and is now just being abandoned and they are filling it in. And when you are taught this kind of broken imperial capitalist system, and then it's what's forced upon you, then that's what you're left with. And you're not entirely sure how to properly use it. And it's still being manipulated by that colonizer. Then the effects can be disastrous. I mean, we see it, We've seen it a lot in South and Central America in uh, regimes that the U.S. has set up, and it has led to violent dictatorships. 
um, that were backed by U.S. policy and U.S. dollar. And that, you know, in this film, it's kind of the film shoot becomes analog for that. And it is this destructive force that blends sort of um, the film and the film within the film and is a destruction of self and image by the end. And it's all, I don't know, I found it also very radical and exciting and dreamlike and visceral and uh, very effective for me. Yeah, if, uh, if uh, that's what this movie's about, I uh, didn't get any of that. Right. Yeah. That, but that's just me. That's just me watching this movie. And yeah, I would say that, you know, this was a film, this reeks of sophomore film, I think, for me. That it really is like someone who has, you know, made a film and has an idea of a film. And I mean, Dennis Hopper also did a lot of stealing of idea for Easy Rider, but that's a different discussion. That is just like, I don't know, he's just kind of, he kind of got carte blanche and he was just fucking around, just kind of doing what he wanted to do, just trying to make a movie that was, uh, that's, that is almost gratuitously, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Formless? Yeah, exactly. That it's like a little too all over the place. And it's a little too whatever he wants it to be and a little too whatever he wants to do. And so in that sense, it is kind of interesting in terms of like what he is doing with the medium of film is certainly cool um, and engaging at points. But at the same time, yeah, like I said, it certainly can feel quite masturbatory at times. Um, I don't know. Instant favorite for me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I can like, I tell. like oh it's certainly uh certainly a grunkle genre, especially yeah. with like its meta fiction aspects. Uh-huh. And, like uh you know, there are times we're kind of questioning like which one of these movies is the movie we're actually yeah. watching. But yeah. um yeah, I don't know. Just too many too many white dudes from America thinking they can make eight and a half. Just mm. just too many of these movies. You know, I don't know. Just uh, didn't do it for me. And it's certainly a movie I think I'd get a lot more out of on a second watch now that I kind of like have a better handle on like what's going on plot wise. Because I was just trying to like really understand what was actually literally happening. But, I, but it was just so all over the place a bit of a futile exercise in this film yeah, especially absolutely. on a first watch you know absolutely. to if you keep trying to cling to something and you're you're never going to be able to then it's gonna yeah affect how you take it in in the end of course but yeah i uh i cannot wait to watch this movie again um, yeah yeah i can't wait for you to watch this movie again Grunkle, yeah. and for me to just tell the people at the nursing home not to bother <laughs> that this is that this is just that this is okay that he does right. this sometimes maybe maybe you know try to insinuate that they should buy it for me on blu-ray or something mm-hmm. um try to think if i want to say anything else there's like um like chris christopherson shows up and there's dean stockwell and there's some other people that Peter Fonda. Dean? When, when did Dean show up? I totally uh, miss Dean. Yeah, Wait, was Dean the guy who wants the gold? No, no, that was not Dean. No, no, no. Oh, Dean was Billy the Kid. Yeah, yeah. Mm, gotcha. He had a beard. I didn't recognize yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. I didn't recognize him when I first seen him. 
The, I didn't know. I forgot Dean Stockwell was in the original Dune movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. he's a Lynch regular. Who does he play? Who does he play? Oh, he plays Yui. Oh my God, what <laughs> terrible casting! What terrible casting! Um, but yeah, yes. last movie, last uh, movie. Uh, speaking of, um, if I ever, if I ever met Dennis Hopper, oh, I would be like, fuck that shit. <laughs> blue ribbon. I'm glad he kind of was like, you know what? I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do a bit more acting again. I'm gonna take a step back. Um, yeah. I'd love to watch. And I don't even think you. Dennis Hopper was the biggest contributor to Easy Rider. I think that he was the loudest voice in the room. But I wasn't there. What do I know? What do I know, Grizzle? What do I know? I don't know. I watched the. Um, I've watched Easy Rider commentary. Uh, with oh, Hopper, Peter story. Fonda, and yeah. and uh, somebody else. Oh, one of the producers. I don't Pinky like Pootap. Pinky Pootap. Seems like uh, it was mostly... I mean, you know, it's going to be a biased perspective, of course, but mm-hmm. it seems like Hopper. It was a lot of Hopper's vision. Mm-hmm. But I'm a Hopperhead. Uh, this, this movie especially cemented me as one. I'm very excited yeah. to watch. Well, you know what, Grunkle? Go hop yourself. Out of the blue. Wait. What? Uh, I'm gonna cut that from the podcast. No, I'll well, leave it in. I'll leave you it cut in. cut this, Grunk. Are you gonna like fart into the mic? <laughs> Are you just not gonna say anything? Yeah. Um. Thanks for listening. As always, I don't think we have anything left to say about the last movie. But Ellie, do you want to tell the fine folk what we're watching next week? Okay, I don't know where they went, so I'll tell you. We're going to watch Melancholia. We're going to watch Mikey and Nikki. We're going to watch Come On, Come On. And we're going to watch Legend of the Mountain. And there is a siren in the background, and I'm getting a phone call. And this is all a disaster. And I'll see you next week. Uh, property, play a set. Thank you.